So, how many baseball fans do we have? All right, we got a few. Um, not, not a big surprise. I absolutely love the game. Um, I love watching the major leaguers because they, it's the best in the world. They're incredible at what they do. But I have to really be honest, sometimes watching those little leaguers is a lot of fun too. Uh, because they're really talented, but every now and then, uh, one of them will provide a little bit of comic relief. Somebody will get a hit, they're surprised by it, and they take off running to third. Um, you know, things like that, man, it's just fun, okay? Um, parents get all uptight when that happens, listen to their kids, calm down. Uh, but, you know, the casual baseball fan really seems to prefer the minor leagues uh, more than anything, and a lot of that is because... You know, it's more fan interactive. It's one of those things where you're closer to the players. There's games that get played, you know, in between innings and stuff. And so we have a somewhat local team, you know, the Salem Red Sox. And our family, we enjoy going there, you know, a few times a year at least. And one of the games they played this year in between innings was called Egg Roulette. And this is, they have six eggs. Two contestants, and you pick an egg, and on the count of three, they smash it against your forehead. Now, five of the six eggs are hard-boiled, so no harm, no foul, but there's that one. And multiple times, it went down to the third round, so we're talking eggs five and six. Somebody's getting yoked. Great for the fans, not so much for the person getting yoked. Uh, but it, it was one of those, okay, is this the one that's going to make a mess or not? You know, I kind of wonder if, if sometimes we ever feel that way in our walk with God. We begin to wonder, you know, am I really doing what I'm saying? Is God pleased with me? Why is it that some people just seem to throw in their faith by leaps and bounds when it comes to this, this unearned fervor in a worship spirit? Now, maybe you don't have those questions uh, of doubt. But I wonder if you've ever played the redemption game with God. This idea that we judge our faith by comparing it to somebody else. Now, we would never walk up to him and go, you know what? I've been looking at, at your life, and man, I'm a better Christian than you are. We would never do that. Okay. But I think sometimes we fall, in, we fall victim to that comparison game. can be just as guilty. Instead of doing what we're supposed to, we're keeping our eye and trying to compete and compare and all of those things. And so really the question I want to ask this morning is how do we make it stop? How do we stop these doubts from creeping in? How do we stop playing the comparison game? Well, if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible and open it and turn on your electronic device uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. As you're going there, here's the, big, the one big thing. As believers, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and seek his approval. That's the answer to how we stop this comparison and this doubt game. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so how does this all play out in this text? Well, let's look at it together. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and ask if you're able to stand as we honor God's word. Now I, 
I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who am present and base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with you, that confidence whereof I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look on the things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we in Christ. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters say they are weighty powerful for bodily pleasures are weak, but his speech is made temperate. Let such a one think this, that such as we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such will we be also when we when we are present. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And now, Lord, we just ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the one big thing is simply this, that as believers, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and seek his approval. There are three things that we see in this text as dealing with living to please the Lord. The first one is understanding the process of spiritual warfare. It's there in verses 1 through 6. You know, Paul frequently talked about spiritual warfare in his letters. He wants us to understand we're not living in a playground, we're on a battleground. That's why in Ephesians 6, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. All right, he is reminding himself, the Corinthians and us, that our enemy is not the people that we see, it's the spiritual forces that we don't see. That's our enemy. That's what we are constantly at war about. And he wants us to know that they will attack you personally. I want you to understand this, that if you are a child of God, Satan is going to come. He's going to attack. And so you need to be ready. And this is where we need to praise God. This is where we get to everything that we need to be victorious in this life. That we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are going to win this war, but it means this, because it's a spiritual war, we have to fight with spiritual weapons, and the two weapons that God has given us, the first one is that of prayer, that's why in 1 John chapter 4, we are told, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world, one of the most important things you and I can do when we pray is to remember who we're talking to, we are talking to a sovereign, all-powerful God the only person in the whole world, the whole universe, that can save our souls and change our circumstances if we desire to. But even if he won't change our circumstances, we have his presence. 
And so it's important that when you and I pray, and it should pray over everything, that we remember who we're talking to. That this is a God who desires us to talk to him. He wants us to come boldly into his presence, seeking grace and finding mercy in a time of need. He wants us to come and thank him and to praise him. second weapon that God has given us is in fact the Bible. We have to be men and women of the Bible. We need to know what the Bible says about God, our Savior, us, among other things. So I want to ask us this question. How do we handle it when Satan's attack attacks church? What I mean by that is how do we handle it when somebody comes up us of something or attacks us about something, how do we fight that biblically in a way that will glorify God? Now, when somebody comes up and accuses you or attacks you, what is our natural inclination? Fight back, right? We, we hit them right where they hit us. Sometimes we might go a little bit lower than they do. So I want us to know this, that when you get down in the mud with a pig, you yourself get muddy. Nobody wins by rolling around in the mud with a pig. So how do we stay above this? How do we glorify God in the midst of the attack of the church? Well, Scripture would say this doctrine of justification. And what is what is justification or justify mean? It means just as if I've never sinned and though I've always been forgiven. How do we know that? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there verse 21, Paul writes this, For he had made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, Charles Spurgeon called this verse the great exchange, because at the cross, Jesus exchanged his perfect standing with God for our sin, and in turn gave us his right standing with God. And so the truth is this, that if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have been declared not guilty. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So by the blood of Jesus, we have been declared not guilty. So what this ultimately means is this, there is no charge that anyone can bring against us that God has not acquitted us of. This is the beauty of justification, that all charges have been dropped based on the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's how we handle when the attack is external. But what about those internal attacks? Satan loves to whisper in your ear. I've been saved by the blood of Jesus, not only 
have my sins been removed, but I am now a member of God's family. He has met me in my mess. He has redeemed me by his blood. He has given me a new heart, and he's now given me a new name, peace. All the promises that are given in Scripture now are given to me based on the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't, feel, I don't feel worthy. Good, you're not. But worth is not determined by what you and I do. Our worth is, de- is declared by who we belong to. And because you have been made in the image of God, because the Son of God died on the cross in your place, you have infinite, eternal value. Every time Satan comes and goes, you're a nobody, you're right. But it's Jesus I love. Because you have everything I need. You are a child of God who can call God Father. You can pray in Jesus' presence anytime you want. That's why Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples to pray, how does that prayer start? sovereign ruler, creator of the world, the the all-powerful God. child of God means there will never be a time and a place I go where I'm alone. And it means that there's a glorious inheritance prepared for me when my time on earth is done. But I don't have to wait until I leave this life to enjoy the blessings and privilege of being a son of God. Because he's given me the spirit. I can enjoy fellowship and communion with God because he has given me the spirit. Because I've been declared not guilty by the blood of Christ, I can go and I can have a conversation with my father. And I can know that he is loyalty, loving, and he is for me and I can pursue him. Church, we cannot fight the way the world fights. Because we know the power of God. What I want you to get this morning, in this moment, is this. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of you as a child of God. The same power that brought life out of death has given us life out of spiritual death. good that I do is for the sake of the gospel. 
for his primary purpose in life is to glorify God and build up his church. If you're here this morning and you are a child of God, I want you to know that you are visited. We have said it countless times. We are a missionary and you are a missionary. We do biblical issues for us. If there's one thing that I have to constantly remind myself throughout the years that I have pastored, I remind you of the position that we have been given is a gift from God meant to be used for the glory of God and building up his church. It is not about given to us by God and that authority comes from the word of God. Practically speaking, as pastor, only authority I have is what scripture gives, that office. I don't get to decide what power I have. I don't get to decide I don't want to exercise the power given to me because it has been given and entrusted by God himself as a gift. Practically speaking, pastor elder only has three functions. They are lead, lead, oversee. All three words used by Paul and Peter in the New Testament. Lead, lead, oversee. Now, why in the world are those three words important? Because they describe servant chapter 10, start about verse 22, what you would read is this. Jesus talked to his disciples and said, you know that the Gentiles, that the unsaved governing authorities, they rule over their people. They exercise authority over them. Jesus then says this, it will not be so among you. For the one who is the greatest shall be the servant. that chapter ends in verse 25 it says but even the son of man did not come to serve or to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many when leadership is about service leadership is about sacrifice anything outside of that and stepping outside of the authority of the word of God is a problem see how a Christian uses their authority their power and their position will ultimately reveal their character. See, it takes love, love for God and love for others to build up. It's easier to tear down than it is to to build up, isn't it? it? It's easy to sit back and criticize and go, you know, if I was doing, I would have done it that way. And we do this every Saturday afternoon after we watch our favorite football team. You know, they should have had a cakewalk, but they didn't. Well, I tell you, if I was the coach, I would have done that. Them players, they're lazy. Do we hear ourselves? I mean, we do it to our bosses. We do it in church. We, we do it everywhere. We sit back and criticize instead of getting skin in the game. It's easier to tear down than it is to build up. But the biblical mandate from God is to build up. 
using our influence for the glory of God to build up his church, or are we just trying to make a name for ourselves? Now, maybe you're sitting here going, well, hey, I'm not in leadership, so I'm off the hook. Not so fast, my friend. The Bible would argue this. You may not be in leadership, but you are influencing those around you. Husbands, you're influencing your wife. Moms, dads, you're influencing your children. Co- you are influencing your co-workers. Those people that you go to the Y or Carillion Wellness, you are influencing them. The people at Kroger, wherever we go, we are influencing somebody. second section loving somebody to serve them and to sacrifice for doesn't mean that you don't hold them accountable you know Paul here the the false teachers if you look at him verse 10 they say for his letters say they are weighty and powerful but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible their charge was Paul you talk a big game but when you get here You're not really so big and bad. So here's Paul's answer. Look there in verse 11. Let such one think this, that such as we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. In other words, you want to see how authoritarian and how strong I can be biblically? You see when I get to heaven. Now this is really Paul giving grace. Because he is writing this letter to them before he gets there. Because he has given them time and space for grace. He's given them time to repent. But he is also clearly warning them there in verse 11. If you don't get it straight when I get there, I'm going to set them straight. Emphasize grace. We're all, hey, we grace people. Grace, grace, grace. But if we're going to be biblical, we must balance grace with justice. Because to balance one over the other is to skew who God is. I want to point you to two quick examples of this. The first one I want to use is Noah's Ark. Book of Genesis says that Noah was 500 years old when God said, hey, build a boat. Noah said, okay. So he starts to build the boat for 100 years. How do we know that? Because in the next chapter it says in the 601st year of Noah's life. Okay? So 100 years, Noah has been building a boat and preaching repent. 
And everybody thought Noah was crazy. Until the flood came. 100 years, God had extended grace to mankind. And then he sovereignly declared, that's it. Grace is over. Club, you pay your dues. And you pay your dues because you 
want them to give the goods and services that you expect. Right? And if they don't give you what you want at that country club, what do you do? You don't pay your dues. You don't go to that, that country club anymore. And when we do that, and when we bring that culture into a church, what we have done is create a consumeristic culture that is seeking to be relevant. And we rob it of the power of God because church isn't about me. It's about the Lord. Everything we do is to the glory of God to point the lost to Jesus, and this is what Paul is getting at, because God judges the success of a church different than the world judges. See, the world says if a company is making money, it's successful. God says that's not always the case. And here's the proof text. Don't take my word for it. Read it. The proof text is Revelation chapter 2 and 3. In fact, there's a church in there in Revelation 2. They thought they were somebody. Just look at these things here. We have a reputation for being wise, but I tell you, we are enemies. Now, on the flip side, chapter 3, there's a church that's going, man, we are so poor. Now, by the world standards, they were. This is what Jesus said to them. In me, my room, by the fact you have a relationship with me, I feel you. Measuring success externally is easy. How do we measure externally? Well, if we got more bodies, if we got a bigger budget, if we got more buildings, great. That's great. That's judging externally. It reminds me of Samuel, the, the prophet in the Old Testament. Saul had already been named king, but the kingdom was going to be ripped away from him. And so God sends Samuel to find the Lord to use him as the next king. And he makes his way over to Jesse's house. And Jesse's got seven sons. Six of them are there. Samuel says, hey, get all your sons right here. We're, we're going to see who God has chosen to be king. And man, one after the other. Samuel's like, yep, this got to be one. He is a tall, good-looking dude. That's a good leader. God's like, nope. Well, this has to be it because this guy's the CEO of a Fortune 500. Maybe G500. God's like, nope. It goes all the way down the line, six, six guys. God's going, nope, 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 nope. Samuel goes, do you have any other sons? Yeah, I got this small guy. He's, you know, he's, he's the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. Go get him. So they wait, and here comes David. God's like, that's the man. Samuel's like, Samuel, stop. You are judging based on the appearance of the man, but the Lord looks at the heart. Oh, well, guess what? You're the guy. And this is what we are called to judge as the success of a ministry, not the buildings, bodies, and budgets, but rather the individual transformation of the believer as well as the church. That's a lot harder to judge. That takes a lot longer to see results. But the success of a church is not determined by how many people come there on a Sunday. The success of a church is seen in how the people who attend there 
become more like Christ as a result of worshiping daily. The success of a ministry is judged by how different the community is because of that church being there. Tom Rainer, former uh, president of the Life Way, he wrote a question to me, I want to say seven years ago or so. church closes doors this Sunday, February 15th, what will you do? Who will it be? Well, so why does this even matter? Listen, who will change our lives? That's the title of this series. We're getting to it. A few more weeks. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 through chapter 2. Here's the paper. way. It's easier to preach a good sermon than to do one. I was just laughing at that. I didn't think of it. But how do I examine my life? That's what the Bible says. I think it means asking the question. The first one would be this. Who or what am I trusting to get myself into heaven? I would submit to you there's no greater question that I can Someone was to say, are you going to heaven? You would say, yes. How do you know? How do you know? Because if the answer is anything about what I have done, about what you have done, you understand the original nature of that decision. We are only acceptable to God as saved, it's a war for your heart. Satan wants you to believe all the lies and to settle for all the messiah, false messiahs there are. Baptism, church membership, church attendance, prayer, preaching, singing, all these things. He wants you to believe those things will justify you into heaven. God says every one of them are false doesn't just want to be the Savior of your life, he demands to be the Lord of your life. He demands that your life, your marriage, your family, your job, your hobbies, your money, your time, every aspect of your life be submitted and surrendered to his lordship. Look at that.